You are listening to the Converge Media Network, uplifting our voices. And we're here. I want to welcome y'all to a very special episode of We Live in Color. This is episode number seven. And today is an important day for all of community. And no, it's not anyone's birthday. It could be someone's birthday, but they're not here. Today is Overdose Awareness Day. I have community partners here um, that will be discussing how we can better educate and protect and build all of our community. This is an everybody conversation. This means a lot to me because I've lost very many friends and family members. And I know you've lost very many family members, church friends, um, high school friends, grandpas, grandmas, aunties, brothers, sisters, etc. But this show is to spread awareness for all of us. Today, I was actually joined a little earlier today by Brad Feingood, um, and we had a nice little conversation. Check this out. Hey, thanks, Deontay. Thanks for having me. This is such a huge, huge, huge day in our community to raise awareness for overdoses. So I thank you, Omari Converge, for having me on today. Well, you are overdose. I mean, sorry, you are community family. You're Converge family. We appreciate you because we did not have enough conversations about fentanyl in our community. And then here you are now and the numbers have spiked. Can we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, and to the point of we don't have enough conversations about it, I think the main reasons why is because of stigma, right? Stigma is the way that we believe and that we feel about things that we don't necessarily feel comfortable with. And what that leads to is discrimination, right? Discrimination in our community and the inability to work with and to treat, um, you know, in this case, substance use or overdose effectively, right? There are so many effective tools that we have in our tool book, in our playbook to be able to work with and address overdose in our community. And what gets in our way most often is stigma, right? The way that we feel and the way that we believe about people who are struggling with substance use disorder. You're absolutely right. Do we have one of those overlays? Okay. Um, okay. So, so since we know that that's impact, impacting us, can you let us know the, the, the numbers that have impacted us since then? How, how far have we spiked since this year started? Yeah. I said 2020, we're 22. Do you think we're going to go higher or how? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I believe I was on, I was here uh, talking to Omari about a year ago and talking about the impact of the, uh, of, of the COVID epidemic on that of the overdose epidemic, right? And these converging, merging epidemics that we were seeing in our community. Since then, overdose numbers have continued to rise. Overdose numbers from 2021, I'm sorry, from 2020 to 2021, year end went up about 40%. Well, and this year in 2022, every single month, we've seen an increase in overdose numbers compared to the same month last year. So we know that overdose, not, we believe, and our trends are that overdose numbers will continue to rise in 2022. And it continues to be driven uh, predominantly by fentanyl, super powerful synthetic opioid uh, that's really uh, behind a lot of the growth in, uh, in numbers of, of fentanyl overdose. And real quick, when I say numbers, I don't mean numbers, Deontay. These are our people, right? These are our community Absolutely. members. These are our family members, right? I mean, myself, my brother died of a drug overdose. 
as you said earlier, these are the people around us. These are in our community. And so people continue to die at an increased number because the, because of the impact of fentanyl. And there are different, I'm starting to see now, they were just releasing this on the news. There are different kinds of fentanyl. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. What I would say is fentanyl is coming in the form of, is coming into our community in different forms. Yeah. Right. So the, it's uh, whether it's trying to be disguised or um, it's different potencies in different forms. It's really the same synthetic uh, opioid that is super duper powerful fentanyl, uh, 50 times more powerful than morphine, 100 times more powerful. Uh, I'm sorry, 50 times more powerful than heroin, 100 times more powerful than morphine. But it's coming in the, these disguised forms. So people don't necessarily know what they're taking. They may have a reduced tolerance and they take it and they die. And also what we're seeing now is that fentanyl uh, is so cheap and so abundant and it's so addictive that people are just taking it at an increased margin, becoming really addicted really fast, super high potency. And it's really, really tough to live a high functioning life. And, and, and that's a great how, like how you touched that. So I do want to know a little bit more about how are people taking it? You know, um, I've, I've heard of smoking it. I've heard of snorting it, but sometimes people don't even know that they're taking fentanyl. Yeah. I would say that that's, that that's probably true. Although more and more, I think with the public information that we've been working on getting out, people probably for the most part know that they're taking it. Fentanyl still is primarily coming in the form of these counterfeit pills. They're blue. They have an M on one side, a 30 on the other side, or maybe sometimes there's an M and a 30 on the same side. Um, and Sometimes people think they may be getting legitimate um, pills, but if it's not from a doctor, a pharmacy, a hospital, then we know that the vast majority of time that it's going to be counterfeit. But we're also seeing fentanyl now come in the form of powders. So somebody might think that they uh, are getting cocaine, maybe a recreational cocaine user. And sometimes there's no cocaine at all in there and there's fentanyl and people are using it and dying it. Across the country recently, they're seeing it in different colored forms. In Portland, they saw it in this colored like brick looking chalk substance, different colored pills. So we know that the evolution is happening fast. It's tough for us to stay on top of it. But as soon as we get the information, we want to get that information out to the community so that they'll be safer. And what steps can we take as community members that aren't in the know? Because, you know, there are community workers that are still in that war on drugs type of mind frame right yeah. and we kind of have to get out of that because this is we're in a new new day and age right yeah absolutely and we know that for years and years and years all that the war on drugs has really been is a war on communities of color you know i can remember myself uh working uh in correctional institutions you know 10 15 20 years ago and walking into a room and i'm the only white person in the room there is something seriously wrong with that, right? And so we need to lead with a public health approach, get information out to people, let people know that treatment's available, right? We have extremely effective treatments like methadone, like buprenorphine, two amazing medications that are available. Can you explain a little bit about methadone and buprenorphine? Just yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So methadone and buprenorphine are two extremely effective medications that treat opioid use disorder so we know that when people start using opioids um, whether it's heroin or whether it's fentanyl that after a while they start using so that they won't be sick 
right? What methadone and buprenorphine do are they stabilize people so that they can live high, well-functioning lives. It reduces overdose risk uh, by about 50%. And so uh, that medication is available across King County uh, and in many other places across the, the, the state and the country. But buprenorphine is available from a lot of doctor's offices or hospitals. Methadone, you have to go to a, 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 um, a freestanding clinic to get to an opiate treatment program. But buprenorphine is available uh, in a lot of places. And then I'd be remiss if I didn't mention naloxone or Narcan, the overdose antidote drug, which is super easy to, to, to get, to carry, and to be able to use, it's just a little spray mist in somebody's nose. Well, who, you know, and the thing about it is overdoses are happening at such a rapid rate. Who should have Narcan? I mean, great question. I mean, the truth of the matter is, was we should all have Narcan. I have Narcan at home in my closet, in my medicine cabinet. We should have it in our backpacks, right? Because you never know, right? You know, going back to something you asked earlier is like, what should we be doing? I think the first thing we need to be doing more of is having conversations, right? Conversations like we're having today, conversations that I have with my kids, not being uh, afraid to ask kids, youth, teenagers, like, what do you know? I remember when fentanyl first came out and I was talking to my oldest kiddo and I was like, hey, dude, what do you know? And he's like, let me show you. And he took out his phone and it's everywhere. Oh, well. So people know and they're getting information from different places. And if we're not feeling comfortable to have conversations with our loved ones, they're going to get the information but we need to help them process and work through that information without judgment. Absolutely. Can I, and, and this is more so in a personal space, like what made you get into this work? Yeah, I mean, uh, my brother died of a drug overdose um, and I have a lot of family that have been impacted by substance use disorder, by other types of, of medical conditions, all that type of stuff. And so I really know the personal impact that, uh, that somebody's drug use can have. And when somebody does have an overdose, right, that overdose is reversible. I think about the day my brother died and I think about I wasn't there, but the stories that came out of it. And if the person who was with him that day would have been able to recognize the signs of his overdose and had naloxone or Narcan on him, on them, then my brother could be alive today. And I say that every single time because I would much rather uh not have this personal story to tell, but since I do, it's my opportunity uh, and my responsibility to tell that to the community. So maybe somebody else doesn't have to die. And, and that's real. I do thank you for coming on. I just want to, what are three things that we can need to take takeaways that we need to remember about over, well, as this is overdose awareness day, but from here on out <laughs> to advocate for community. Yeah. Thank you. Number one, I think the biggest thing that we need uh, to do is to have conversations, right? To be okay with having conversations with people, to feel comfortable be feeling uncomfortable. Number two is that there's tools that we have at our disposal, right? That between um, medications uh, to treat opiate use disorder, medications to bring back people from an overdose. And then I think the third thing that, that's most important is for us to like think about the way that we think about people, right? People with substance use disorder are everywhere. People who are struggling with drugs are everywhere throughout our community. It's not in just in Seattle, right? Like here in King County, it's everywhere across the state. When we look at people who have died of fentanyl, it's everywhere across our community. And so to change the way that we think about people, 
and to think about the way that we think about people without judgment, right? And, and to lead with love, because if we don't lead, lead with love, we're pushing people further away. Just so grateful. I'm so grateful for Mr. Fanga coming on here. I appreciate him so much. And we will be segueing into one of my good friends, Theo Wells. We're going to take a break real quick. You're watching We Live in Color. Hey, y'all. My name is Nicole Harvey, and I proudly serve as the Director of Community and Family Engagement at Seattle Jazz Ed. And I'm here to let y'all know that we're getting to launch our fall programming the first week of October. So if you're a student or you know a student between the grades 4 through 12 that is interested in playing music, whether they're a beginner or they've been playing for a long time, we have saved a seat for you. For more information, please visit our website at www.seattlejazzed.org. All of our programs and classes are offered on a sliding scale tuition policy, which means that families get to choose what they pay, no questions asked. We also have free loaner instruments available for every student to use. If you have questions, you're welcome to contact us via email or by phone at programs at seattlejazzed.org or 206-324-5299. Basically, fam, believe in giving. Like, we have to be willing to give more, and people seem to always think giving means money, but nah, bro. It's like you can give time, you can give understanding, you can give access, you can give a listening ear and an open heart. You can give and share your God-given gifts and talents, but you just got to give. Welcome back, everybody. We're at, we live in color. We're talking about overdoses in our community for Overdose Awareness Day. Right now, I am happy to be here with a good friend, Thea Wells. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much yes. for having me. So can you explain to the community what you do? I work for Public Health Seattle King County, and I'm the harm reduction and fentanyl testing program manager. I try to spread the, the harm reduction message throughout the community, increase access, improve the harm reduction services we have, and I do a lot of fentanyl-focused harm reduction work. We were talking a little bit before the break, right? And do you have lived experience with this? Or? I do. I'm an overdose survivor myself. So this is an important day um, for me. Um, and thankfully, you know, part of my story is like starting with public health needle exchange and harm reduction and my social worker, Adrian, who really um, treated me like a human being at a time when I really didn't have a lot of those folks. And so... You know, years later, I became a social worker and ended up at public health taking her old job and um, just been bouncing around doing harm reduction work since. What are things that people need to know in this community with navigating through this process? Because it's forever changing, right? Yeah. Especially with fentanyl. Yeah. Pay attention. We got to be um, awake and aware right now. Things are changing rapidly. And um, so it's really important that we're talking to each other, like Brad mentioned, and sharing resources, letting people know where to get help, how to get help, what to do in case they encounter someone having an overdose. Um, so, yes, this is perfect. We're spreading the word. Yeah, spreading the word is right. Right. But we do know Narcan is available. But what I notice, right, is in communities of color, people are like, well, what's that? What is, mm -hmm. what is that? Why do you think that that is, that we're not getting that access? You know, it's been sort of this thing for a long time. Harm reduction messaging and services has not been as readily available in the Black community. Um, and for a community that's at higher risk for overdose, that's a shame and, and shouldn't be the case. So we're here to, you know, work on that. Right, right. And so... I, I, 
and then I know that I heard about fentanyl test strips. So those exist. Yes. Yeah. You can test, you know, the drug that you plan to do to see if there's fentanyl in it before you use just so you have a little more information and know to take it easy if so or maybe sometimes decide not to use that because they really didn't intend to get fentanyl and don't want that okay so okay so you're gonna have to teach me how to use that in a few no problem (laughs) but i think that one of the things so what keeps you in this fight I mean, you've been doing this with lived experience, like like keeping on with the keep up because it changes. And I think there's a lot that's go. What area do you live in? Federal way. So it it changes. Right. So what what can we do to make this make make it better for our community members that may be in crisis? Yeah. I mean, talk about things. There's so much stigma and it's such a secret and people are struggling and they don't feel like they can talk about it. Um, and so I really think that's like a one and then figure out what you need to do to help your people and, and work on that. We got to work together. There's no way for us to get out of this mess, you know, one by one. Right. And I think that that is really, really important. But I want you to do me a favor. I didn't ask, but I'm going to ask. Can you teach me, teach community? Of course. What, how to use, not can, how to use, what a fentanyl test strips look like. Can Happy you do it? Too. Okay. Of course. Well, when we come back, we will be learning how to use Narcan and looking at these fentanyl test strips. You're watching We Live in Color with Deontay. All right, y'all, we are back with We Live in Color. We're Overdose Awareness Day. I'm here with my good friend, Thea Wells, and we are going to walk through. This is, this is Naloxone, also known as Narcan. Thea, can you teach us a little bit? Yeah. So if you identify that someone's having an overdose, which um, maybe their skin is a little bit, um, if you're darker skinned, ashy, if you're light skinned, might look a little bit blue, which I mean, you know, in a white centric world, we used to just talk about blueness, Mm -hmm. but that isn't the case if you have darker skin. So we know now we need to be more inclusive and And so if you find someone that's looking a little ashen and their breathing is really slow and you think they may have um, taken some opioids, you can just spray this little nasal spray right up their nose, which is super simple and easy. Um, It's pretty self-explanatory. Two fingers on top and a little thumb on the bottom. And you're just going to put it right up their nose. Um, Of course, we'll also want rescue breaths if you're trained in that as well. But um, what are rescue breaths? where you're just like CPR, where you're breathing for someone. Because with an an opioid overdose, your respiratory system has slowed to the point where you're not getting enough oxygen. And so folks really can, um, you know, be permanently harmed without enough oxygen for too long, which could lead to death, but also other um, damage that, you know, folks have to live with. Okay, and then I have to ask this question. When someone is overdosing, and we call them, a lot of people are scared to call the call the call the ambulance, right? Mm-hmm. Does is there any laws or anything that is in space that protects people in that space? We do have a good Samaritan law in Washington State. So if you do call the police for an overdose, the police aren't going to come and charge people in the space for drug possession, including the overdose victim. However, of course, there's always those right. <laughs> little sticking points. If you have a warrant, if you're on DOC, if um, 
there's like bagged up things in a scale, you know, if there's obvious felonies um, happening, then you might be at risk. But we definitely want folks to call for help um, because an overdose doesn't just need Narcan. Sometimes folks need more help or it might not be an overdose. So calling is good. I always recommend that you just talk about symptoms. My friend is not breathing and they look ashy and they're dark skin. We know whatever. And describe what the person is presenting as. But I don't say overdose when I call for help because I know the police are first to show up in that scenario usually. And they're not the most helpful in an overdose. Sometimes we'd prefer. To have well, that's going to be another conversation for another episode. <laughs> and so I see you have this. Now, what is yeah, this? So these are fentanyl test strips. Can we open one up? Yeah, sure. Right. Go ahead. They were designed to test um, in urine. And so we use them in a, in a creative way to test drug samples for the presence of fentanyl. Okay. And so you can take just a little tiny grains of your powder, or if you have a pill, you would want to crush the whole thing and dump out and just test the residue. If you um, are injecting drugs and you're cooking up a shot, you can just use your cooker right after you fix your hit. Um, You put about a teaspoon of water up to a quarter cup. Um, and you just swirl it around, put your little strip in there. Everyone gets confused because of course they did it backwards. Two thumbs up is your negative. And so we always, or two lines is negative. So we say two thumbs up is what we're trying to remember because pregnancy tests and COVID tests are always, you know, backwards. So. Yeah, well, well, and keep in mind, this is why are these so important, at least just right now in the areas of wellness for people? Yeah, I mean, we need knowledge. We need to be able to take care of ourselves. We have a drug supply that is toxic because of prohibition. It's getting worse. Um, you know, so we don't anticipate having a better drug supply anytime soon. So it's really important that we have the most information we can to keep ourselves safe. And so finding out if there's fentanyl in your drug is a good idea. Even if you want to use fentanyl, it's good to know what you're using if you can find out. And where can we be able to How is Because I mean, I know it's not accessible South King, right? I know that there's a lot of resources out there in the North. Well, we have a couple of vending machines. Vin- Hold on, wait, wait. You got vending machines to get this. We do. Pure Kent and Pure Seattle both have a vending machine with fentanyl test strips and Narcan available. Um, and so if you are looking for test strips or Narcan, please go to Pure Seattle or Pure Kent. They're happy to help you. Also, um, you know, go to the kingcounty.gov slash overdose site. We're going to add more resources to that page soon. And so if you're looking for things, it'll be a good place to go to find them. Thank you so much, Thea. Thank you. Next up, we have Lisa Mannion, who's running for King County Prosecutor here. We have to have more conversations about this for our community. And you're watching We Live in Color. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. We are here. Um, we live in color. Special episode. We're talking about overdose awareness. And I have a wonderful guest here. Um, thank you so much for the call to action to have this community conversation. I have Lisa Mannion running for King County Prosecutor. How are you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to have you here because I think that, you know, when we talk about public safety in our communities and overdoses in our communities, why is this such an important conversation, do you think? Well, let's start with the value statement that human lives are at risk, right? And 
as someone who cares about public safety, it's my number one priority. Of course, I'm going to work with leaders in our communities to address this crisis. I mean, we have to, as part of public safety, we have to reduce harm. We have to end and prevent deaths, right? Um, the other thing is that we know that in the United States, more than 10 million Americans age 12 and up misuse opioids every single year. And we can't turn a blind eye to 10 million cries for help. Right. And as prosecuting attorney, I will always be a strong proponent for our drug courts, our mental health court, our veterans court, because they address root causes. Right. And I will also fight for increased capacity for community-based treatment and treatment on demand. Individuals, especially our teens and young adults, should not have to go through our criminal justice system to get help. And that's, that's real. Because, I mean, I think that one of the things that my community has dealt with is the war on drugs. It's constantly the war on drugs. And it's like, well, I see so many organ, so many programs out there in the north end of Seattle yeah. and they get all these resources and all we get is score um, as opposed to that. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that like there's has to be more of a heavier conversation or or more or more awareness on what that looks like for us. I mean, people have already been talking about it for so long, but when we talk about leadership within that position, I think it's essential. Well, we know, I mean, we know from data, we know from lived experience that the war on drugs was harmful, right? That the criminalization of drug users and really punitive sentencing models that increased incarceration mm -hmm. had a direct and harmful impact, not just on our communities of color, but also on women, and on poor and other marginalized communities, um, we can do better. So, you know, part of public safety is acknowledging that we have racial disparities in our criminal justice system and working to dismantle those. And so when we think about how to end the drug problem in our community, it really does start with treatment and addressing root causes yeah. and being honest about the size of the need in our community and scaling services to meet that need. And some of those needs are well, they are policy, right? Yeah. So what other policy changes do you see in that space? Well, you know, I, as someone who, you know, believes in public safety, right? It's my number one priority. We have to do both. We have to address both incidents of crime and root causes. So when I think about drug dealers, I think, yes, we hold them accountable. It is not okay for drug dealers to prey upon you know, vulnerable individuals and to prey upon our communities, right? In 2022, so far this year, the prosecuting attorney's office, we filed 175 cases against drug dealers. Mostly um, those cases involve opioids and fentanyl. And we also know that from 2020 to 2021, overdoses in our King County community increased by 40%. And that 70% of those overdoses involved opioids. So, of course, we have to tackle the demand side, right? We have to hold those who are preying upon our communities accountable. We also have to address root cause. The people who need help and need services should get treatment. And when they get treatment, their desire and their need to steal and to commit other petty crimes to feed their addiction, it gets greatly reduced. It's a yes and model. Yes. And lastly, as you're running for this space, today is Overdose Awareness Day. Yeah. I have lost community members all over King County. What would you like 
community to what 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 call to action would you like to give to community members right. that are that are dealing with this today? Well, I think the call to action is that this is an everyone conversation, right? I think that's how you started this segment. And we must all work together. We don't have the luxury as leaders or as community members or law enforcement officers to say, this is not my problem. It is everyone's problem. And if we work together, we can have a thoughtful and effective and modern criminal justice system that both addresses root causes of crime and allows people to recover their and restore their lives, but also attacks incidents of crime and holds accountable those individuals who are preying upon vulnerable populations. Those do not have to be at odds at one another. And we can do that in a thoughtful way, but we have to work together. And I thank you very much for coming here in space to talk to community today. It's very much appreciated. Um, and I thank you. Thank you. I literally called you last minute and I appreciate you reaching back. Well, thank you for this opportunity and we are in it together and we will work on this together. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back with interview with Malika Lamont. You're watching We Live in Color. We are living in color. I'm Deontay Damper. Earlier today or earlier this week, I did have a conversation with a good friend, Malika Lamont, director of Vocal Washington. Um, while we talked about the impacts in not just our community, this is not just the King County issue. This is a statewide. Check out what Malika said. My name is Malika Lamont and I uh, work with Vocal Washington and the director of Vocal Washington and also I work to provide technical assistance for the lead model, Let Everyone Advance with Dignity, also known as Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion. Um, and I'm the director of the statewide technical assistance team. And we're very happy to have you here. So today is Overdose Awareness Day and I, I know that there is a spike out there in Snohomish County, but we know that there are, are issues going out there in Thurston. Mm -hmm. As a resident, right? Mm -hmm. What does it look like out there in our community? Um, well, I think what we're seeing across the state is that um, there we're, we're in the midst, we're on this side of the spike. Um, fentanyl has hit our communities. And um, so it is taking us up that trajectory up into, we have not hit the spike yet. Um, and we're seeing it all over our state uh, in Southwest Washington. Uh, it's, it's a pretty dire situation as it is everywhere else. Um, we combine the, the complications that you see in King County that is more populous with the fact that our folks are more spread out um, down in the more uh, suburban and rural areas. So getting help to folks and getting resources to folks is more of a challenge. Um, and communities are, they were disproportionately impacted um, earlier parts of the opioid epidemic and we're in that trend is still continuing. Yeah. And how do you, I mean, we know that it's happening out there and it's spiking, but out there in the ruler counties, right, that we have that don't don't have that much access, such as Snohomish and King, right? Because we hear a lot about that. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think that it's impacting communities of color out in the more ruler states, counties? Well, in Washington state for probably as long as I've been doing this work, which is going on about, you know, specifically looking at the opioid situation with overdose is going on about 15 years or so, 15, 16 years. Um, you know, indigenous people that oftentimes live in, you know, outside of the major urban centers, but also are present in urban centers, but have a disproportionate um, overdose rate of four to one. Um, so for every um, white person that 
dies of an overdose for indigenous people die. Um, the thing that we have also seen in this latest trend of spikes that we're seeing is um, black people are now um, three times more likely to die of an overdose um, than a white person. And so the disproportionality is increasing. Um, so the inequities that have always been there are being exacerbated. Yeah. And as all of that is increasing, how, how, how is it that you are able to advocate in that space? How do you, you utilize your voice for the voiceless? Because I, I know you work right? mm-hmm. and respect everything that you do. So how, how is it? Because, I mean, it's forever changing. Um, we sometimes sit in rooms where it's it, some people are so disconnected by fentanyl and uh, methamphetamine, which is what people are overdosing now. Mm-hmm. So how is it to a- make sure we're advocating for our communities? Well, I think that um, we need to take a step back and not continue to perpetuate this cycle that we have in this country of um, identifying or like latching on to a particular substance and recognize the roots of where um, a lot of these issues come from, that we have a prohibition based system. And part of that means that there's an illicit market and that means it's an unregulated drug supply market. And that in an illicit market, you are always going to um, see market forces develop a more concentrated substance. We've seen it ever since alcohol, right? Bootleggers, moonshine. That was a more, you know, when alcohol was prohibited, um, the easiest way to traffic and make your most profit in an unregulated market was to have a more potent product. So moonshine was the thing. And then you had, you know, um, violence that was associated with that, as well as, um, you know, the, the harms that were hitting marginalized people. And we're seeing that happen even more so now with, you know, fentanyl is just a symptom of our prohibition based system. It is the most concentrated and potent way to traffic opiates. So it becomes the, the drug supply. But what we continue to see is the most marginalized people being the, the, the end user, the person that is experiencing a substance use disorder, being the individual that is targeted. And, you know, oftentimes um, lawmakers will say, oh, well, no, this is to, our fentanyl laws are designed to get at the traffickers, but that's not who oftentimes are the people that are um, most impacted. Um, for example, in federal way, you know, if you're caught smoking fentanyl out in public, So who's most likely to be doing that? A houseless person without resources. And they are the ones that are subject to a a local. That's um, in federal way. In federal way, South, South King County, um, that, um, you know, that they're those individuals, the most marginalized individuals that are not in charge of the drug supply in our community are facing the disproportionate impact of a gross misdemeanor up to 364 days in jail and I believe a $5,000 fine. Those are the people that are going to get the disproportionate impact. That, that is crazy. Now, and I, I, I could be wrong, but how many resources are actually out there? Like safety consumption sites, uh, you know, because I see them a lot in, in like um, in the north or northern areas of Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, of, of King County, but not south. Why do you think that that is? Well, I mean, I let's let's look at the bit. migration of people that has occurred in King County. I mean, you know, with gentrification, um, the communities of color in the central district, fo- folks have been forced to migrate to where, um, you know, rents were affordable. And that was into the south, you know, of the county. And I mean, we're seeing the same trend throughout our, 
you know, whole entire country. I mean, disproportionality is the worst that it has been ever in the United States since they've been paying attention to these things. In 2018, the United Nations said that, you know, they wrote a report about the grave disproportionality in our country. It's recognized, the United States is recognized internationally as having some of the worst disproportionality. And when you marginalize, when people are at the margins and then they're further targeted by prohibition-based systems that are designed to make their lives harder, then you know you are going to consume, you are going to see what we call disproportionate impact or um, social determinants of health. These are all social determinants of health. Our overdose rates are an indication of the impacts of these social determinants of health. And you know, criminal legal system involvement is also a social determinant of health. And when you have laws that are specifically targeted at already vulnerable people. We see people's quality of life decline. And, and as a community advocate, right, um, as I've seen you do tirelessly, right, mm -hmm. how, how's the support? Do you think that it's do you think that people are like, yes, call to action, let's move now? Or is it more so of like, let's wait, because we know, as you stated, like um, people out there in South King County, well, black and brown people, right, especially our indigenous people um, are out there. Um, the numbers are spiking for us. Are we getting the support that we need? Are we getting the authentic support that we need? No. Um, even, I mean, simple answer, no. Um, and it hasn't happened. Um, it's it is concerning to me the level of disconnect that we are seeing from our state government in relationship to um, these issues uh, that, I mean, you know, we've all been through the collective trauma of COVID, right? And people have compassion fatigue. People are fatigued, just generally speaking. Um, you know, there's real issues out there, inflation, all of these different, you know, impacts that individuals are experiencing. So people are tired. I think there is a call to action. People are concerned. And, and I, and I didn't, answer your question when you were speaking to, you know, like supervised consumption spaces. We don't have any, um, you know, sanctioned supervised consumption spaces in Washington state. And um, we, we have a move towards that though. People have been asking for it since 2016. Before 2016, Vocal started the campaign um, under Patricia Soli's leadership, um, <clears throat> you know, with Anthony Radovich and Tarina James, um, some of the founding members of Vocal Washington. I love those guys. Yes, me too. <laughs> and, um, you know, advocating in Sydney Wilson, you know, advocating to have a space where people can go in order to get, um, uh, have safe access and, well, they bring their own drugs with them, but have safe access to a space to be able to consume those drugs and to be able to be saved. Um, we've seen in New York City that, um, you know, the supervised consumption space is there. Uh, people are able to access services. They're able to get supports. Um, they're able to be monitored to make sure that they're safe. Um, once they've consumed drugs that are potentially poisonous because of our unregulated drug, drug supply due to prohibition. I mean, I think we really need to focus in on what the issues are. Um, unfortunately, uh, the process that we thought was going to lead us towards a more thoughtful approach with our um, drug laws in this state through the SIRS Act has not yielded um, 
the relief that we thought could be possible in the moments after the Blake decision when our Washington State Supreme Court decided that our simple possession statute was unconstitutional according to our state statute. And we had really looked to our legislature um, to come up with a thoughtful um, solution. And it was, it was, it was really um, discouraging to hear legislators from both sides of the aisle um, say, well, let's just put knowingly back into the statute so that we can prosecute people and with this law that we know has not worked and has harmed people, disproportionately black and brown people and poor people. So what, <laughs> so what now, right? Mm-hmm. It, within that, right? That happens. This pushback constantly happens. And you're still vocal. You're still out there. <laughs> advocate, like <laughs> You're relentless <laughs> in the space, right? So what do we do? How can this community support you how to su- support us support the movement mm-hmm. because i think you know some of our community members can be elitist right <laughs> well uh, you know well back in my day well honey this is a new day <laughs> numbers are spiking there are people that you're sitting next to your cubicle with that may overdose there are people that your children that are going to school that are going through the space mm-hmm. may overdose there are people that may be houseless in the space that may overdose and what can we do in the spaces to make sure that we're advocating mm-hmm. or or educating community members in that space well i think that um staying aware of what's happening with the um sursac process i think is important holding what, the what is this? can you explain um, the a substance bit? use recovery um golly i forgot what the a is anyway um but uh, but it's, it's essentially it is a work group that i'm on i should remember the acronym anyway um that it, but the point of it is to develop a meaningful response throughout our state um that would create a positive impact for people that are experiencing um substance use issues and um to develop further develop our um, services milieu, as well as um, to support our communities in building a relevant response at the community-based level and um, upwards. Um, I think that, you know, staying aware of what candidates are, their platforms are, this is an election year, Um, being, being really in tune to, do the people that are running for, to represent you, actually represent you and represent what you care about and um do they are they progressive in one area but maybe they're they have some blind spots when it comes to drug laws and how that will impact individuals the toxicity of our drug supply is such that you know if an individual uses for the first time it might be their last time Mm. and you know i think that hopefully most of us recognize that, you know, folks can end up in a situation and cope with something in a way that they might not normally, you know, do that. But is that, does that mean that they should die? And I think that, and to your point, when you mentioned elitism, I don't know that it's so much that with our community members. I think that we have, we've drank the Kool-Aid as far as um, the drug war (laughs) messaging, um, that somehow people are morally less than because they experience a substance use issue or because they choose to use substances. And and I think that, um, you know, we all have our own mechanisms for, for coping. I consumed copious amounts of caffeine on my way here today. And (laughs) hence I'm a tad jittery anyway. And, uh, and, and it's impacting my behavior. However, I don't think people are, I mean, they might, 
judge me for being a tad scattered, but they're not going to judge me for my caffeine consumption. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that we judge people for um, using substances to cope in unprecedented times and circumstances um, isn't helpful. And it doesn't it doesn't help us um, grow as a community. It doesn't help us improve. Um, and I think that uh, since people are so tired, we're hearing a lot of really problematic messaging out there. Um, there's a lot of ignorance um, and assumption that, uh, you know, and for example, that law that we we're just that local mandate in um, federal way that I was describing earlier has been marketed as a public health approach when in actuality secondhand smoke from fentanyl is not any more harmful to you than secondhand is that, smoke is from that a new Is that a new from thing cigarettes? for secondhand smoke, secondhand smoke from fentanyl? Can you explain it a little bit more? Okay, so the particular, the gross misdemeanor statute that I was describing earlier, that um, if an individual is caught consuming um, uh, or smoking fentanyl outside, or outside um, and someone is in within your secondhand smoke area, that you can get 364 uh, days in jail or um, up to a $5,000 fine, I believe it's $5,000, it might be more than that, um, that, that targets the most vulnerable people. Um, <laughs> let's be real clear on that. Right. Um, you know, that secondhand smoke is not any more toxic to you than um, cigarette smoke, marijuana smoke, any other form of secondhand smoke. And so, you know, when we're stigmatizing people, and penalizing them for a poisonous drug supply that they did not bring into this country. What sense does that make? Like there's nothing else in that except for stigma and harm, but it's marketed as a public health approach. So my question becomes, so are, are those same penalties gonna now be what happens for people that are smoking cigarettes? I would say that it's not going to, it's not necessarily going to be any more functional. Right. And why would we enforce that? But yet federal way is also the same community that turned down money to increase access to treatment in that community. Hold on, wait, wait, sorry. <laughs> they turned down money. Can you explain that a little bit? So there was money to help help our community members that may be so, so, experiencing substance use yeah. issues. Yes. So if public funds were offered to that um, area and the powers that be, the local government turned down the fund. They said they only wanted, I believe, $100,000 when there was potentially way more available in order to increase social services in the area for the people that live there. And it was turned down because there's this myth that if you have services, then people are going to come to your community to access those services rather than we should all have access to services so that when people in our communities need them, they can get the help that they need and they don't have to go all the way, as I say, full tail boogie before there's any intervention. Right. That is interesting. I just, just thinking about South King and you just kind of laying down that history. I, I know the community not only needs to hear this, but 
what's next for community? What do you have uh, next planned? What are we doing out there in South King coming up? Um, that so, we can be able to support. Right. <laughs> so um, Vocal Washington is going to be um, partnering with um, some entities in South King County to uh, do some political, some candidate forums um, because information is power. Um, we don't, and Vocal doesn't endorse any one candidate. Um, however, we will, uh, we will provide an opportunity to uplift the issues of individuals that um, are our target populations with vocal law, which are people that have experienced mass incarceration, the impacts of the war on drugs, homelessness, um, or HIV and AIDS. And so we work with our constituencies to uplift, uh, to develop questions and then uplift the issues for candidates to be able, for the community to be able to see um, what their positions are on um, the issues that are most impactful to the people that we um, collaborate with. So um, we'll be working with, I believe, the Urban League and 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 Federal Way Collective, Black Collective, and um, some other folks uh, in order to partner on um, some political forums down in that region. Um, we're also partnering with other entities across the state in order to um, uplift these issues around the state. And I'm so, I'm so, 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 so grateful for Malika to be here. I'm so, so grateful for Lisa Mannion to be here. I'm so, so grateful for Brad and Thea to be here. But above all else, I'm so grateful that you all are here with us having this community conversation about overdose, because when it really comes down to it, there are very many people, brothers, sisters, uh, church friends, other friends that aren't here. And we have to do a hell of a lot better job of showing up as opposed to being there. On that note, my name is Deontay Damper, and I'll see you next week on We Live in Color. Converge Media produces culturally relevant content for Black and urban audiences. Our coverage is raw, transparent, and objective, praised by community leaders, government officials, and residents. Support Converge Media today via Venmo, Cash App, or PayPal at Converge Media.